Welcome back. I'm Jessica Hutton, the host of the Bible Study Tutor podcast and the founder of the Bible Study Tutor. Today we are covering Matthew 27. Matthew 26 ended with the conclusion of Jesus' illegal hearing among the religious leaders and Peter's denial, which Jesus had predicted. In Matthew 27, the narrative continues the next morning, and the chief priests and elders presented Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Rome, who would authorize Jesus' crucifixion. After conspiring to put Jesus to death, the religious leaders take him to Pilate. Judas, remorseful for betraying Jesus, returns the 30 pieces of silver, but the leaders reject his remorse. Judas then hangs himself, and the priests use the money to buy a potter's field, which was also a fulfillment of prophecy. Meanwhile, verses 3 through 10 document Judas's suicide. He recognized that he had betrayed what he referred to as an innocent man, and changing his mind, he returned to the chief priests and elders to report that he sinned by doing so and returned the money to them. The chief priests and elders did not express empathy toward Judas, nor repentance for what they had done, and informed Judas essentially to deal with the issue on his own. Judas then threw the 30 pieces of silver back to the priests and elders, and when he left, he hanged himself. The text offers no clues that Judas repented or was converted. He was sorrowful because he betrayed an innocent man. That the man was Christ, the son of the living God, does not appear to be the issue that plagues him, and that guilt and shame compelled him to end his life. The chief priests and elders, true to form, said that it was not right to put the money into the temple treasury because, and I quote, it was blood money. True to form, they upheld their pious facade by enforcing the letter of the law, not realizing that they stood condemned regardless. Just think about how many times Jesus said to them, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. They didn't get it then, and they didn't want to, and they didn't get it now. After consulting with each other to figure out what to do with the money, they decided to buy a potter's field. Matthew's account says that they used the location as a burial plot for Gentiles. They named the location the Field of Blood. Whether it was named thusly before or after Judas hanged himself is not clear, but the name is quite fitting as it represents the shedding of innocent blood that was on their hands and the blood that was shed in guilt and shame when Judas ended his life. Matthew writes that this event was prophesied by Jeremiah. However, the text appears to combine prophecies from Jeremiah and Zechariah, but the point was to demonstrate that every detail of Jesus' passion was part of God's plan. Next, Jesus faces trial before Pilate. The religious leaders questioned Jesus to accuse him of blasphemy, a charge that, that they would have considered worthy of death. They did not have the power and authority to implement the death penalty, however, which is why they presented Jesus to Pilate. The political leaders were not interested in religious affairs per se, so the only reason they would consider Jesus a risk is if he had broken any Roman laws. Accordingly, Pilate questioned Jesus to accuse him of attempting to usurp his role, which is how they would have interpreted his claim of being the king of the Jews, and that claim could also be viewed as insurrection against Caesar himself, which would justify the death penalty. So Pilate asked Jesus if he was the king of the Jews, and in the same subtle fashion as he answered Caiaphas, Jesus affirmed his identity. You have said so. Then when Pilate asked Jesus about the charges that were brought against him, he did not answer. Pilate then finds no fault in Jesus and offered the people a choice. 
Would they prefer that he release Barabbas, a notorious prisoner, or Jesus, who was innocent and greatly envied by the religious leaders? Pilate received word from his wife warning him not to take part in Jesus' death. He was aware that Jesus was innocent and only stood before him because the religious leaders envied him. Judas was keenly aware of Jesus' innocence as well. And the religious leaders, stubborn and hard-hearted as they were, knew very well that Jesus was innocent too. Yet there he stood before religious and political leaders who were committed to putting him to death. Now, if you're chronically online like I am, you may be familiar with the phrase, the math ain't mathin'. That Jesus is standing before the Roman authorities with a death sentence looming over his head makes absolutely no sense unless the Lord ordained it. I think that may be why Matthew went out of his way to reveal just how everything that happened in Jesus' life was a fulfillment of prophecy. He wanted his, under, his readers to understand that regardless of how hard it may be to hear, Jesus is sovereign and in complete control of everything and used the situations and circumstances that make no sense to us to make the math start mathing. <laughs> now, in the cross of Christ, John Stott explains that even though the scripture points to the inevitability of Jesus' death, they don't necessarily explain what makes it inevitable. The answer regarding its inevitability, Stott reveals, comes from Christ himself, who had predicted his death and remained committed to achieving his mission no matter what. Now I'm paraphrasing Stott here and saying the main reason why Jesus knew he would die was because he chose to. He was determined to fulfill what was written about the Messiah in the Old Testament, even though he knew it would be painful. This wasn't because he believed he had no control over his fate or because he wanted to be seen as some martyr or hero. It was because he believed that the Old Testament scriptures were from God and he was fully committed to doing what God wanted him to do and finishing the work God had given him. He knew his suffering and death wouldn't be pointless. He came to save sinners and his death would be a sacrifice to set them free. So despite knowing he had to die, it wasn't because he was forced by evil forces or some unavoidable destiny. He freely chose to fulfill his father's plan for the salvation of sinners as revealed in the scriptures. For Jesus, his death was the most important part of his mission. Even though his teachings, examples, and acts of kindness were significant, what mattered most to Jesus was giving his life for others. This final sacrifice was what he considered his purpose for coming into the world. Now back to the narrative. The crowds begged Jesus to release Barabbas and demanded that he crucify Jesus. Fearing a riot, Pilate released Barabbas to them and ordered Jesus to be flogged with a lead-tipped whip. He then turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. The way each gospel author narrates Jesus' passion is significant. It is important for us to note and meditate on the unique vantage point of each evangelist's account and recognize the implications of how they tell the story of Jesus' crucifixion. Throughout the book, Matthew emphasized that what Jesus accomplished or otherwise what unfolded in Jesus' life was a fulfillment of prophecy. He had told his disciples about his looming death and resurrection three times and all the while, even though it seemed that tragedy was underway, the narrative actually reveals Jesus' triumph. Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. Born to live a life we couldn't live 
and die a death he didn't deserve so that we could be redeemed, reconciled to the Father, and restored. Jesus knew that he was born to die, and his mission, as his name reveals, Yahweh saves, is the meaning of Jesus and its counterparts, Yeshua and Joshua, was to save people from their sins. That is precisely what his death and resurrection would achieve for all who believed in him. Derek Tidball explains the significance of Matthew's account of the crucifixion as follows. There are several reasons Matthew chooses to highlight the fulfillment theme and telling of Christ's death. First, it suggests that Christ's death was no accident, no mere working out of an unfortunate coincidence of circumstances beyond anyone's control. It was all in accordance with God's divine plan and his unfolding purpose. His death must be seen as the outworking of God's will. Secondly, the prophecies highlight Jesus' prophetic knowledge. What happened did not catch him unawares. He did not manipulate his life or engineer his death to play a predetermined role. Nevertheless, his life fits the prophecies concerning the one who would deliver Israel and confirms him as the messianic deliverer. Jesus himself, steeped in the scriptures as he was, knew both that his death was inevitable and that its effects would be redemptive. Thirdly, Matthew uses the theme of fulfillment to point out that there is continuity in the work of God as well as discontinuity. Although, as we shall see, the cross inaugurates a new era in the history of salvation, it is not to be seen as an unexpected development. Christ's death is part of the unfolding plan God had announced generations before for which many had thirsted and longed. Jewish Christians who question the legitimacy of this departure from Judaism would find assurance in understanding this truth. God was not double-minded, nor was his plan of salvation inconsistent. What happened at Calvary was foretold long before. End quote. Verses 27 through 44 document Jesus' crucifixion. The author does not provide details about the crucifixion. Matthew simply reveals that Jesus was stripped and mocked and that the Roman soldiers assembled a crown of thorns and forced it upon his head and mocked him as the king of the Jews. The people spit on Jesus, hit him, and forced him to carry his cross until they found a man named Simon to help him. Jesus would be crucified at a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. There he was crucified alongside two guilty men, convicted as though he were accursed and a felon, even though he never sinned a day in his life. Crucifixion was a brutal form of execution that involved affixing a person to a cross or a stake and waiting for them to die. It was used by several ancient civilizations, but it became most notably associated with the Roman Empire. The origins of crucifixion are not exactly known, but it's believed to have been practiced by several ancient cultures, including the Assyrians, Persians, and Carthaginians. The earliest known reference to crucifixion comes from the 5th century BC in writings about the Persian Empire. The practice was later adopted and refined by the Romans who used it extensively as a form of punishment and deterrence. Crucifixion was designed not only to punish the condemned person, but also to serve as a public spectacle and warning to others. This method of execution was used for a variety, variety of offenses, including rebellion, sedition, murder, and treason. 
It is particularly common during periods of social unrest and military conflict. Now the method of crucifixion varied slightly across different cultures and time periods, but the basic concept remained the same. The process typically involved the following steps. 1. Sentencing. The condemned person would be sentenced to crucifixion by a judge or a ruling authority. In Roman times, a crucifixion was considered one of the most severe forms of punishment reserved for slaves, rebels, and other undesirables. Eventually, it would be used as a means to persecute Christians. 2. Preparation. The condemned person would be stripped of their clothing and beaten or whipped as a form of humiliation and punishment. They would be forced to carry the crossbeam, also known as a patibulum, to the place of execution, often in a public area to serve as a deterrent to other people. 3. Affixing the cross. Once at the execution site, the condemned person would be affixed to the vertical beam of the cross. This would be done in several ways, including nailing or tying the wrists and feet to the woods. The, pr the precise method of affixing varied, but the goal was to, to secure the person firmly to the cross. And then death. The person would be left to hang on the cross in utter torture until they died from a combination of factors, including shock, exposure, dehydration, and asphyxiation. Death could take several hours or even days, depending on various factors such as the individual's health, the method of crucifixion, and other environmental conditions. Crucifixion was eventually abolished by the Roman Empire in 4th century AD by Constantine. Now, several medical journals describe the process of crucifixion and what may have been Jesus' official cause of death. A 2003 article called the History and Pathology of Crucifixion describes crucifixion as follows. Crucifixion in Roman times was applied mostly to slaves, disgraced soldiers, Christians, and foreigners, only very rarely, if at all, to Roman citizens. Death, usually after six hours and up to four days, was due to multifactorial pathology, the after effects of compulsory scourging, maiming, hemorrhage and dehydration caused by hypovolemic shock and pain, but the most important factor was progressive asphyxia caused by impairment of respiratory movement. Resultant anoxema exaggerated hypovolemic shock. Death was probably commonly precipitated by cardiac arrest caused by vasovagal reflexes, initiated interalia by severe anoxema, severe pain, body blows, and breaking of large bones. The attending Roman guards could only leave the site after the victim had died and were known to precipitate death by means of deliberately fracturing the tibia or the fibula, spear stabbing wounds into the heart, making sharp blows to the front of the chest, or making a smoking fire that was built at the foot of the cross to asphyxiate the victim. A 2012 medical publication titled The Crucifixion of Jesus, Review of Hypothesized Mechanisms of Death and Implications of Shock and Trauma-Induced Coagulopathy explores what factors may have led to Jesus' death after crucifixion. It reads, several hypotheses for the mechanism of Jesus' death have been presented in medical literature, including one, pulmonary embolism, two, cardiac rupture, three, suspension trauma, four, asphyxiation, five, fatal stab wound, and six, shock. As reviewing each factor, 
They hypothesized that the primary mechanism of Jesus' death by crucifixion was traumatic shock complicated by trauma-induced coagulopathy. Regardless of the precise details that went into crucifixion and what physical factors eventually led to Jesus' death, the point of theological emphasis that matters to Christians and prospective converts is that Jesus the Christ and Son of the living God gave his life as a ransom for many. We read the gospel accounts and blame the religious and political leaders for doing something so heinous to Jesus, something that we are certain we would never do. And yet, according to the author of Hebrews, any time we reject Christ, we crucify him again and again. It's Hebrews 6, 6. Yet what we must never forget is that the main reason Jesus was crucified is because of the sins of humanity. Galatians 3.13 reads, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, through his act of intentional sacrificial love, Christ exchanged our sin and curse for his righteousness, offering us freedom from condemnation. Remarking on why partakers of the gospel must not be so quick to distance ourselves from contributing to Jesus' crucifixion, John Stott writes, We were there not as spectators only, but as participants, guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining, and handing Jesus over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempt will be as futile as his, for there is blood on our hands. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. Indeed, only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace." End quote. Matthew continues by documenting that Jesus was mocked by onlookers as he hanged on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Then the land darkened, and at 3 p.m. Jesus cried out to God. Then after another loud cry, Jesus, still in control, yielded up his spirit. The temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. There was an earthquake and the rocks split. Tombs were opened, and believers who had died were resurrected. Then upon witnessing these things, a Roman officer, that is a Gentile, acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God. Joseph of Arimathea requested Jesus' body to bury him in his brand new tomb. Pilate grants the request. The next day, the religious leaders requested permission from Pilate to secure the tomb as they feared Jesus' disciples would steal the body to claim that he had rose from the dead. Pilate allowed them to seal the tomb and take soldiers to guard it. Now, I spent a lot of time talking about Jesus' crucifixion because I want us to acknowledge the historicity of Jesus' death and, more importantly, the theological implications of his death. When we think about the fact that Jesus died on the cross, we do so with an emotional barrier. We would prefer not to think too deeply on the matter because it hurts. His suffering and death was brutal, morally, moreover, totally unjustified, and we don't like to think about it. So on Easter, or Resurrection Sunday, many churches skip the cross and head right to the resurrection part of Jesus' story. But I have challenged myself and I challenge you to look at the cross. Because 
There we deserve to hang. Jesus was on that cross because of us. He bore God's wrath for us. He was disrespected, dishonored, spat on, beaten, whipped, and sentenced to one of the most degrading forms of death in human history because of us. Thus, we should not look away from the cross or distance ourselves from the reality of sin in which we are continually guilty because we put him there. Instead, we must demonstrate incredible humility, awe, worship, and immense gratitude for Jesus' sacrifice. Moreover, as John Stott explains, it is important to recognize the central role of the cross in the Christian message. While the resurrection is crucial for confirming the effectiveness of his death and demonstrating his victory over death, it's the cross where the victory over sin and death was ultimately won. The resurrection vindicates Jesus as the Son of God and confirms the effectiveness of his sin-bearing death for the forgiveness of sins. Without the resurrection, our faith and preaching would be meaningless because it's through his resurrection that Jesus as the living Christ bestows upon us the salvation he achieved on the cross. While both the death and resurrection of Jesus are essential aspects of the gospel, it is the cross where victory over sin and death was accomplished. The resurrection assures us of this victory and gives us hope, but it's the sacrificial death of Jesus that forms the core of our faith and redemption.